Certainly the biggest one was saying to people, I'm writing a novel. Like when I'd never done that before, I've been an environmental consultant for years. And so my writing has always been technical. So I know how to technically write, but obviously writing a novel is a whole different thing. So finally trusting myself and just saying, I'm going to say this. What's the worst that can happen if I let people know that this is what I'm doing? Because I also couldn't keep it a secret any longer because I was, I got an office and I was making myself write. So I wasn't available to do some of the things that I might've done with my girlfriends. You know, there wasn't any more coffee. There weren't any more lunches. It was really like, I'm doing this and I'm taking it very serious and I can't. And then everybody was like, can I write, you know, can I read some of it? And I was like, no, I wasn't ready for that, that part of it. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. I am chatting with Martha Hunt Handler. She is an award-winning author of Winter of the Wolf, a novel that tells the story of Bean and her search of really trying to find the truth behind her brother's death and her own healing journey. And we will be chatting about different themes, not too much itself about the book, but more the themes in the book, because we don't want to give it away. And also about your own life as well, uh, Martha, so that the listeners can get to hear about you. So welcome. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate that you actually read the book because I've been on over a hundred podcasts and you're the first person that's read the book. And it's really hard to have a discussion of anything about the book if you read like two sentences on Amazon or something. Are so, you, the, the, I, I have the only times I've not read a book is if the they send me like the podcast, like the week before, like the, you know, like, or something like that, that I don't have time, but I at least leave, read like half of a book, but no, yours out. Oh my gosh. I am. I'm in shocking. shock. And some of I'm them are shock. book reviews. Like, so it's like, it's a little hard to be reviewing my book when you didn't read any of it. And like, that, I, I'm, I'm like making up the questions and giving the answers because the person has nothing really to say. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm excited then <laughs> to have this conversation with you. So first, sh share with us about your upbringing and where you grew up and where you live now. That's kind of how I go and start the conversations. Okay. Usually. I love that. Um, I grew up on the Illinois-Wisconsin border. It was very rural at the time. I could hear animals that were very, there was a sense of frightfulness and impending doom and I wasn't sure what the animals were trying to tell me and finally I realized that we were the first house in what was going to be a big subdivision so all the forests around me were being leveled one by one and I was horrified all I wanted to do was become older quickly so that I could do something about it because no one was listening to me 
say this is so bad and why are we saving some of the forest? It doesn't have to all be houses. And anyway, it was emotionally draining for me. I went, um, when I was 16, I moved to Steamboat, Colorado. I went to school um, at Boulder. I emancipated my parents early. And then kind of lived all over the place. I lived in San Francisco, D.C., back to San Francisco, met my husband in a bar in Mexico and moved to Los Angeles. And then when we had three of our four kids, we moved to New York. So I'm part-time in New York City and part-time about an hour north um, in Westchester County in South Salem. So I'm mostly in the country these days, which I'm really enjoying being back with the animals. <laughs> and I see, I see the passion just even from the visual as of course we're seeing each other i see two two i see a calendar right behind you with a wolf <laughs> and if i'm not mistaken way back there either that's a picture of a wolf or of a puppy way in the back yeah it's a wolf a wolf as well so there is a passion for sure for wolves and hence why you also added a character of a wolf in the book and the title of course so tell us more about your writing journey and how it is you started the career as a writer, as an author. Okay, this is a very good warning for parents because I thought I was going to be a writer from a very early age. I was always like scribbling and making up stories. And I remember when I was seven, I wrote this book about um, a turtle and a rabbit and I illustrated it and like wound it together. So it actually opened as a book and I waited for my parents to get home that night. They were out for dinner and I showed it to my parents and my dad said, he read it and he said, well, it's not a very good story. You're not a great illustrator and writers don't make any money. And I believed, you know, that my dad knew what he was talking about. And I really put that out of my head for a very, very long time. And I got, you know, encouragement along the way from like English teachers and professors, but I still heard my dad's voice above all others. And it wasn't until, you know, maybe like 20 years ago when I was just started to fool around with it. And I mentioned to a friend that I was just kind of scribbling ideas. I don't know what it was going to become. And she was like, I'm doing the same thing. Let's get together once a week and read to each other and see if we can figure it out together. So that helped a lot because we, we added one more friend. So there was three of us and I had no real story in mind. It was sort of more about my childhood. And I was looking for like, I want something to drive the story and it's not enough. I didn't want to do a memoir. So I was like, what is it? What is it? So just like my novel, I was skating one day ice skating and came across a deer that was embedded into the ice. And I don't know why to this day, why that happened that all of a sudden I could hear the, the boy from my story, Sam's voice. And it was a, a friend of mine's son who had passed away. And he started telling me this, my story is your story. Like just, this is going to bring up everything. It's going to make it all make sense. Just start writing. And then I got really serious about it. And it still took a long time before I told anyone what I was doing. But when I finally did and said, I'm writing a novel, 
and just put myself there and put my butt in a seat every day for, you know, like six hours, then started, everything started coming together. And it's so beautiful, so beautifully written. I could not put it down. And as I mentioned, even though I was sent the PDF, you guys sent me the PDF uh, version of it, the Kindle version, I downloaded the audio and I was like, you know, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? So that's why I don't want to say too much because it is a novel and we want to make sure that the listeners go into it. But themes that are in the book, you mentioned deer. Yes, the deer, there's a very main character also of the, the deer being one of these main characters as well. And one of the, uh, aspects in the book is the Inuit beliefs. Can you touch on that and why you chose, cause this is, this is important for listeners. Cause I feel it touches on grief of how we grieve or how we, uh, the rituals around death and so forth based on different belief systems as well. And so with this being the Inuit belief, which is the first time I read with about that, I'm not in, you know, in any way, and also especially in a novel, why did you choose those, that belief system here of one of the characters? So I fully believe in reincarnation. And for me, I think I was a Native American for a lot of lives. And I think that I was... Also, maybe an Inuit, because I'm very connected to the North and the South Pole. I mean, Antarctica is probably my favorite place to be. And I don't have very many like-minded friends, so I always have to go alone because everyone's like, what are you, crazy? But it's so special there, and it just deeply touches me. And like the character in my book, when we were in second grade, we watched this black and white movie from the 1930s called Nanook of the North. And it just follows silently this this native this Inuit called Nanook and instantly remember seeing him and thinking he was related to me like I knew him so well I knew his mannerisms and the way he was living and I was just mesmerized and I remember at some point looking around the classroom and everyone was like throwing things doing spitballs at each other like no one else was at all thinking this was a good idea. And I'm sure for second graders to watch a black and white movie done years before with no words in it probably wasn't very interested. But for me, it was like, ah, I know these people. I know the way they're living. It's so great. And I just think there, other cultures are a lot better at dealing with death than we are, especially natives that were here before the rest of us. Seems like it's just such a healthy... Yeah, just to, they understand that it's just part of life. Death is nothing more than a part of life. And, you know, we know that you can't really destroy energy, right? It's a lot of thermodynamics. You have to, energy has to stay around. It just can change form. So it would seem like we would have a better way to be dealing with death. My best friend is a, um, a hospice nurse. And so we talk about this a lot and she gets so upset because she's like, you know, the people that are the most religious are the most afraid of death because they have this vision of like fire and brimstone and darkness and torture, whereas other people don't really have that. And you would think that one of the most important things to be about religion is to give you a sense of peace around something that you know is going to happen <laughs> instead of fear. So it's just very interesting to me. Death has always been really interesting to me. 
as you're saying those two contrasts, I remember my sister died 27 years ago. And when my sister died, I remember my dad saying to us, kids, you're so lucky. You're so lucky that you grew up already with the set of beliefs that we had. And even my dad already believed even at that time about uh, life after death or, you know, life after life or whichever one we want to say, however we want to continue it, uh, word it. But because he had had an upbringing that had been different, kind of binding those two of like what he grew up believing to what he was choosing to believe now, it was still a, of a more of a struggle for him. So sometimes I ask people like what, when I'm coaching especially, like what did you grow up believing about death and what do you believe now? Or also, what would you choose to believe? Like you said, like what would bring you hope and some kind of comfort in this really hard moment of your life of not having the person by your side anymore? Yeah. So, that's yeah. so, so interesting. So my girlfriend, Gretchen, who's the story is loosely based on her son and his uh, death, which looks like a suicide. I went to his funeral um, and she was adamant the minute that this happened, that despite what the scene looked like, he didn't commit suicide. Um, and we got to her funeral, his funeral, and everybody was saying these things to her, like, what? If he was so depressed, why wasn't he on medication? Why weren't you seeing a therapist? Uh, and he was like a really happy. He was 12, boy. right? 12. 12 he, was, he was popular. Lots of friends, played sports. Like th there was no sign that there was any depression here. And I noticed that they only asked the questions of the mother. Like the father was completely absolved. It wasn't his fault. But there was definitely blame and shame. And it was just a horrible thing to experience because I just felt like even if, even if it is suicide, like if you choose to end your life, it's obviously so painful that you don't want to go on another day. And people think, oh, it's selfish. Like, I don't think you're thinking of your, <laughs> your, you're just, you just want to be out of the pain. You're not thinking about how this might affect anybody else. But it made me really want to explore that deeper, which I hope that I did in this novel. Just that idea that we say things without giving them too much thought. And Gretchen and I had grown up very spiritually. Her mother taught these classes to a bunch of her girlfriends just about the spiritual realm and trying to believe and understand things in a different way. And yet when her, when her son passed away, we both looked at each other like, well, yeah, you're supposed to be here for the time that you complete whatever you did, but he was 12. What did he do in his lifetime? This makes no sense. So it threw our beliefs completely up in the air. And we were so strong in our beliefs, but when you're actually faced with it, it's a whole different experience so it was for both of us just talking through this whole novel and understanding also that you can be doing things in your life that no one really sees on the outside so I think he was on a spiritual path he was doing things and affecting people's lives but it wasn't something you could put your finger on and say well he you know had a cure for cancer or, you know, whatever, you know, he was doing his work. It's just not always so easy for the rest of us to see. Yeah. It's not like the timeline we think of, at least in my perspective, like in this 
you know, t- you know, time is restricted in the earth to the sun and you know how many times <laughs> there are days and nights and days, right? Time is just such a construct, really. So we don't really know the effect of someone in a day of life or a hundred years of life, what effect and what purpose that life had, right? And the effects it had on others. So thank you for touching on that. Now, how did Gretchen take like how many how many years after he had remind his name was Beth no Brandon was Brandon Brandon when Brandon I was like I knew it was a B name uh, when Brandon uh, died how many years later did you write the book and that you approached like I'm going to do this in honor of your story and of Brandon it was tw- probably over twenty years from his death to the book actually coming out and I wasn't. We, we were in touch, but we weren't really discussed. She knew I was writing this book, but she didn't really know. I said, his, it's going to be a similar death. And I'm still trying to work out, you know, why I'm doing this. Are you comfortable with this? And at one point I talked to, he had two other siblings to get their kind of perspective of what they were feeling. And that obviously changed, like we were just talking about. It changes as time goes on. Um, and there was definitely more of a sense her kids were really good at bringing up funny things that he did and like that he was really interesting. He was 12, but he had a lot of, it seemed like past life experiences and he was always bringing up really funny things and he was just a cool kid. And so it really helped me come around to that conclusion of you really have to be thankful for the, all those moments you had and not dwell on what you imagine there would have been if he hadn't been passed, because it's, it's irrelevant, right? But those stories and who he is will never go away if you start keep talking about them and reminiscing about them. And I recently went to a friend's funeral and he died of that widow maker. So really unexpected. He was like 52. And two of his kids lived overseas. So it took a while. It was almost three months before they got back into the country and decided to have this funeral. And I thought it was the best thing ever because Everybody was out of that shock element where you're just somber and no one can really believe that this has happened to this man. And it was such a celebration because people had time to like put videos together and remember stories. And it was like two hours of just literally laughing because he was, he was a funny guy. And people didn't know that he had touched this life and this life and this life. And it, it could have gone on for hours and hours because people just kept wanting to talk about it. And I thought, wow, that is just such a, a better way to do these things than, you know, 48 hours later when you can barely function, let alone be trying to tribute, you know, have a tribute to somebody. It was a great learning experience. I, as you're saying this about the different ways also in which people handle, you asked, you know, Brandon's brothers, also some stories as, as well. And in this story in the winter of the wolf, there is a family of, let me see. Hold on. One, two. It's four. Bro- it's four siblings. Four. Three. Four three kids, brothers. Three. And then, then yes. Yes. Yeah, three. The one girl. Yeah. Four. Four kids, and then father and mother, and their dog. Which I was like, wait, what was the dog? They were like the do- dog. <laughs> and dogs and dog, um, and so, in it, you also explore the different ways in which everybody grieves. So. 
talk about that. And as you you've just even said right now, in your own life experience and the ways that you've even experienced grief yourself, have you even noticed different ways in which you've grieved as you as you've kind of grown into the woman you are now in different situations based on the age of the person that's died or the relationship that they have with you? It's certainly still hard when somebody young, really young dies, I think. And that's a hard thing to get over. Um, but the more open you are, I feel like you're able to have those conversations if you have that time and you're willing to go there. There's a really great book called The End of Life Book Club where he was a New York Times writer and his mother is has a terminal cancer, but she's still going through chemo. And he decides to have this book club with her where they're going to just write down every book that they never got to. And they'll read them and discuss them as she's getting her chemo and he moves in with her and they go through this whole thing. And it, without having to talk about, okay, so what has your life been like? It got brought up through all these books and it's just a great discussion. I thought it was an amazing um, book. I recommend it for anybody, but I was so grateful that my parents both, died of like a little bit longer illnesses. So there was time and I was comfortable going there to, you know, tell me what it was like when you were five and when you're six and what you're, you know, whatever. It just, it's, it was great to finally ask all those things. And I was recording it. I did the same thing with my father. And now I'm doing um, StoryWorth. Have you heard of that? Where it's like, you sign up for StoryWorth and every week it asks you a question or you can ask your, you can pick, you can make up your own question. And it's sort of, I All just got things. an advertising. I actually I just agree. got an advertising on Instagram. I think I did something some some I interviewed a uh, the founder of another organization called No Story Lost, but I just got an Instagram sponsored ad just this morning of what you're saying. Yeah, I really like it because on my own I probably, you know, it would be one of those things, yeah, someday I'm going to get to this, but I love the way it prompts you every week and then one of my uh daughters started asking me questions, which I'm now using in place of some of their questions, which aren't as relevant. And you can add pictures to it. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just like, I'll be happy that I have this for my kids because there's going to be a lot you forget to ask anybody, you know, about their whole lives growing up. Um, I always like that. The idea of like writing to your 12 year old self, your, your 15 year old self, because there's just so much knowledge and like you want to give them all that stuff that you didn't have like and so in just like you want to have empathy for what they're going through but also be like you don't have to dress like everybody else you don't have to be afraid to say your thoughts that you think are crazy because they're not so crazy um you know at least write them down somewhere so you remember them yeah i just think like yeah life is just amazing that way <laughs> thank you for sharing that experience and were shout out to it was story worth right story worth yeah star story worth and then the book was the end of life book club so those two and i'll try to remember put them on the show notes but if not then here they are now in writing this book what did you find was the most challenging and i asked this also thinking of what you just said about your own upbringing and your first right story of your turtle and the and the rabbit and the, and the <laughs> rabbit and being already told you didn't 
do a good job, basically, or the story. So what was some of the biggest challenges in writing this book? Certainly the biggest one was saying to people, I'm writing a novel. Like when I'd never done that before, I've been an environmental consultant for years. And so my writing has always been technical. So I know how to technically write, but obviously writing a novel is a whole different thing. So finally trusting myself and just saying, I'm going to say this. What's the worst that can happen if I let people know that this is what I'm doing? Because I also couldn't keep it a secret any longer because I was, I got an office and I was making myself right. So I wasn't available to do some of the things that I might've done with my girlfriends. You know, there wasn't any more coffee. There weren't any more lunches. It was really like, I'm doing this and I'm taking it very serious and I can't. And then everybody was like, can I write, you know, can I read some of it? And I'm like, no, I wasn't ready for that part of it. Like, I'd know? be, I'd be nervous, especially after what you just said of like your trauma quote unquote of yeah. showing it to your parents you know one yeah. of your parents as you were little and then somebody saying it's kind of like when you choose a baby name and then yeah. you tell people are like now nah, no. yeah 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 no <laughs> exactly because I thought what do you think you know if you say that you like it I'm not going to believe you I doubt you're going to say you don't like it because you don't want to hurt my feelings so there's nothing good to becoming of a friend reading my novel you know, I'd much rather send it to somebody that doesn't have any ball in the game. They, you know, they're not, they don't even know me. They're not going to hurt me. So it was like a huge thing when someone said to me, because I think my novel was at one point like 100,000 words and it needs to be more like 40,000 for a first time. <laughs> I have a lot to cut out. So I just kept any story that had happened to me, I just kept, and I thought was remotely funny. I would just like throw it in there, just try to weave around it. And this big book coach was like, oh, no, no, no. You know, like, you need to read every sentence. And if it doesn't move along, you know, the theme, a character, the setting, then it needs to go. And so that was like, wow, chop, 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 chop. <laughs> um, and that was hugely helpful. And her telling me, so why are you writing this book? Which I never even stopped to think, why was I writing this book? She goes, you need to know that. I mean, it has to be. There needs to be a reason. People don't need one more book to read if it doesn't get them a little further in life. And so that was a hugely helpful, obviously something I probably could have read on the internet and been like, oh, <laughs> that's a good idea. But she made me do sort of a whole vision board of like what the story is going to make you grow into. She's like, you could do a tree, you could do a river. Something has to take you from A to Z. Like, and where is that going? So that was like a very good visual for me to, to have that. And I, I love the fact that it was a novel, yet touching on these really major life themes that we all can relate to. So it's like for the listener, at least for me, hearing this, feeling the pull of the, the tug of emotions going with the characters and the different ones. I actually, I could relate to several of them. I could relate to the character of Bean, and I could relate to the character of the mom because I've been, you know, it's like I'm both of those, you know, I'm a sister, I'm also a mother. So those type of things and just relating to that. How was it for you to get into writing in the voice of teenagers as well? Like, what was your inspiration around that? Because, okay. yeah. This is, this is a good one because... I originally had the protagonist being 
she was getting her MFA and she was, so she's in the serious writing program and she's getting comments back from her advisor saying, we think you should stop the program because you're not delving deep enough into characters. There's something that's keeping you from going to the places deep enough inside somebody that makes your stories interesting. And so then she starts reliving her brother's death from when she was 15 and how that affected her. So I took that novel and, you know, sent it out to a bunch of um, agents. And one of them took the time to say, actually, I think it was like three different agents said, this would be so much better if you kept her at 15. Like, don't look back. That That just takes away a lot of tension and interestingness. Like, keep her in that place. And that's going to be hard to do. So, and I had said, okay, well, I don't know anything about the teenage voice. My kids are older now. Um, like go, go to the bookstore and start reading some teenage novels, which like, wow, why novels are way more real and deep than they were when I was a kid. Um, I was kind of shocked, but also just amazed how great they were. I just, I could wear, read teen literature all the time now. I love that stuff. So that really helped me find what who Bean was and what, you know, just, and it helped me tap into my own childhood and who I was and who I kind of wished I would have been. Like, I, you know, people are like, who's your favorite character in the book? It's like, it's Bean because it's like me if I didn't put all those limitations on myself or didn't listen to all those outside voices. Yeah, like she, against everyone's wishes, just keeps digging into her brother's death, just cannot accept that a suicide was the cause of it. And not that she felt like suicide's such a bad thing, just that it just didn't, her gut was saying, no, this isn't it. This, this is not it. Um, I, one of my favorite books is The Gift of Fear. Do you know that book at all? I do not. It's Gavin DeBecker. Um, and what he does is take, especially women that have had very uh, violent encounters, um, either rapes or muggings or something that really has given them PTSD and they haven't really been able to move on from that. And he gets them to go back to that moment and see, like one of them is like this woman, she pulls up in front of her apartment. She sees this guy kind of walking in the street behind her. She immediately gets a horrible feeling. And She's kind of fighting that feeling, thinking like, why am I so scared? It's the middle of the day. I'm going to be fine. And she talks herself out of what her gut is telling her. And it's like our, it's like our superpower. Like every it's like our other habit. brain. It's yes. A, it's right. It's such an important thing, but she, she ignores it. She gets out of her car. Um, she opens her trunk. She's got groceries. This guy says, can I help you with your groceries? And she said, no, I'm fine. You know, I just live one flight up. And he's like, no, let me help you. You've got three bags. You've only got two hands. Well, he goes on to horribly rape her. And she's like, and so he gets you to see, like, you could have stopped that from happening if you were just listening. I mean, the thing to do would have been to lock your doors and drive away. Simple. So he, he gets people to see that there was always these moments where you were conflicted with the way I feel. And then my brain saying, Oh, it's going to be okay. This is ridiculous. You're, you're crazy making here. 
And yeah, I think that's so important. And when you're young, I think those feelings are there even stronger. And the more that you don't listen to them or tap them down, I think they just stop showing up for you anymore. Like if you're not going to listen to me, I don't, what's the point? But it's like every animal on the planet knows when a predator is in their vicinity and they know what to do and they don't ignore those feelings. And I think, yeah, we have to get back to that place because it's an important one. You, you, you know, being that the character in the story is a teenager and I know I, she, she tries to research her a little bit or do things without her parents necessarily knowing too much to at the beginning. She does have a really good friend and that's who she confides in and being able to share all this. But uh, let's talk about that part too, because it's also not only just about ourselves blocking that intuition, how easily we allow others to block our own and even just us as parents of being able to validate our own children's fears or emotions or situations as well, correct? Correct. I feel like my, my mom was specifically really good at this when she, I would say, um, can I go to the, this party with these friends? And she's like, I don't know. How are you feeling about it? And when she would bring it back to me, I always had, a, like, I don't think I should probably go. <laughs> it's not really feeling good. She's like, okay, then I don't think you should go. So like, that's a good thing as a parent to say to your kids, like, right. To give them some authority about themselves. Like, I don't, I don't know the house you're going to. I don't know the friend you're talking about going with. What do you, what is it that's telling you in your gut? Yes or no? Or are you kind of squishy squashy about this? Then I would say no. Like if there's any feeling at all and it's not a positive go for it, then it's a no. No, that is, that's so great. I'm going to use that. How are you feeling about it instead of just, because also, gosh, it's like as parents, we even experience that aspect of of guilt so much too, right? And so then if we've kind of already allowed it to be dissipated by the other person <laughs> choosing rather than us choosing for them, right? it could take a little bit of the weight too. <laughs> I'm glad I'm on the other side of this. My kids are all in their late 20s and 30s, but yeah, so it. much there as a parent. It's so tough. I want to talk about how these type of themes and novels, in this case, grief, Inuit beliefs, suicide, or any other, or death, the importance of novels addressing these type of themes. Can you talk about that? And, and in some of these research books that you read of the teenagers, were there some of these heavier themes also? In there were, book? and I think, like, at least we're talking about it now. Right. And it's so much more palatable to read it in a novel form than you're probably not going to pick up the nonfiction book on suicides or on, you know, it's, it's just so much more palatable if it can something that you can relate to in some way um, and get you thinking. And that's all I really want to do in my novel is get us all thinking about this. I'm about to have my 65th birthday and I've invited a bunch of women to go away with me and I'm thinking about my themes for each night I want to do something different but one of them is going to be to talk about how you how you see your death like what do you want have you ever told anybody 
exactly what you envision this. Because when you're in the midst of, you have to deal with your parents' death or whatever, it'd be so nice to have one piece of paper that said, this was my vision. You don't have to carry it out to the T, but you know, I want these songs to be played. I want it to be a party around this lake. I want my body disposed of in this manner. I just, I was just reading the other day that if you have a pacemaker, you can tell them you want it given to a vet because pacemakers can't get transferred from human to human. But a lot of dogs die because they, the owner can't afford a pacemaker. I'd never heard that before. So it's like a document also that you have to constantly update um, based on new things that you learn. But yeah, I just think it's, I want, I just want death to be something it's going to happen to all of us. So let's just talk about it more. Let's like, I was lucky enough to be in Madagascar when they have um, their ritual. I think it's Midahara. Um, where at the seven-year anniversary of the death, they uh, dig up the bones from the casket and carry them around singing songs. And and they actually dig up the bones, put them in this sheet, write the name of the deceased on it, decorate it any way they want. And they believe that it's their ability to communicate with that soul a little bit closer than if they're not holding the bones. And it just sounds so weird to other people, but anything that makes you feel closer to the person, I think is great. Let's talk about that because in the book, the one thing was the beliefs of the person that died. The other thing is the beliefs of the people that are around and grieving. So in this, in this concept, right, of even yourself writing what your death wishes are and how you'd wish to, you know, your body to be taken care of and the ceremonies and all that kind of stuff. How do how do you suggest people kind of consolidate those two? Like not only like that the person themselves is being honored by their wishes, but at the same time, this concept of the people around are grieving. What is going to help them grieve this death? Does that make sense? Like it's such a it's so complex, right? It's so so complex. when I'm honored, but then it's like, wait, but I don't want to carry around bones in the back and then walk it seven years later. That wouldn't feel fulfilling for me, right? But it might be for you. And right. even if that's what the other person wanted, like, <laughs> what do you think about this topic? I mean, I think this is what I want to explore on my birthday. Like, just think about what's going to be okay for you and for them. So, yeah, in my book, the boy who's deceased had thought about it because he really wanted his his remains to be done what Inuits do, which is uh, to leave them exposed and to let animals um, use them in any way they want to. And the family was very kind of traditional. They just wanted to put him in a casket. And, and the daughter knew the, this, her brother's wishes, but was completely ignored. But at least nowadays things are getting better in terms of what you're allowed to do. It didn't used to be like this. So I'm always researching it because I just find it so fascinating. I was last week I was talking to, they take your cremated remains in Florida and add them to a bunch of stuff. And it creates a coral, you know, artificial coral reef. And, and I was saying to them, I really want to write an article about you guys and include you as one of the options, but just cremation alone is 
horrible for the environment, really horrible. They still pretty much embalm you. That's kind of a normal thing. I don't know why you're about to get cremated, why you would embalm them before, because those are awful chemicals. And then the temperatures that they turn them to, all that stuff gets released into the air. So if you have metals in you, which a lot of people do at this point, you know, rather it's your teeth or artificial knees or whatever, all that stuff, those toxins are getting released into the air, which is horrible. So I say, like, you can't some way use the body without <laughs> But I just feel like, yeah, the trees that are growing out of these pods from people's bodies are really cool. There's groups making soil that's really interesting. Yeah, I just feel like, yeah. So, yeah, it's that part of like, okay, this is what their wishes are. I will follow that. And I guess you just have to find your own maybe other ritual for yourself that brings you comfort in your life as you're honoring the person that's guides wishes, right? Because I think there's the body aspect and then there's, yeah. yeah whatever other way you want to mourn and, 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 or celebrate or however it is you want to do. Now, Martha, so you touched on grief and suicide in this book. What is the next novel that is brewing? Is there any other project or novel that's brewing in your gut and brain? (laughs) Um, So a lot of people have written to me to say, really want to see where Bean goes next. You know, does she, does she continue on? Does she have a romance? What happens with her? But I think I'm done. I think I'm done with that story and where it has to go. Maybe not forever, but for right now. (laughs) Something I've been thinking about recently is having a novel called If, If Beds Could Talk, and it would be different beds from different eras around the world and the conversations that took place while people were in the bed. Because I just think, you know, they say like you're, you're most honest when you're horizontal to someone you're speaking so that you're not picking up facial cues, like when you're driving in a car with your spouse or whatever. You have the most honest conversations because you didn't just see that frown that would make you like, okay, then I'm not going to talk about this because obviously he's already mad about something, whatever. Um, so I thought it'd be interesting, like if if beds could be listening to us and what they would report about what was being said in beds, because I think all sorts of things can happen. Like you know, especially if it was like a a hotel or something. So you've gotten away, and you get away because something happened, or you celebrating something with something terrible. You know, just I think there could be a lot to explore. <laughs> that would be so cool. I'm like. All of these ideas make me want to feel like writing. I'm like, I don't even know where I would start, but it's like, it's so cool. I, I like room, maybe like bed in room 203, yeah, I don't know, yeah. something like that. And then just going from there of what happens in that. <laughs> I have also thought about doing more of a memoir piece because my husband's on Wall Street and I have a wolf center. So it's like the wolf in Wall Street. It's kind of a, <laughs> let's see. That is great. Martha, is there anything I have not asked you that you would like to share with the audience? Of course, we'll go into the details of how they get their book and all that afterwards. But is um, there I would like to share that, like that all share? the book proceeds go to my Wolf Conservation Center. So we are located an hour um, north of New York City, and we advance the survival of 
Wolves by inspiring a global community through education, advocacy, research, and recovery. We have at any time between 30 and 50 wolves. You can visit us. We see about 30,000 people a year, uh, a lot of students, and we are in part of the breeding and release of the two most critical endangered wolf species, which are red wolves and Mexican gray wolves. Both of them down, were down to single digits in the 80s, and they got taken into captivity, which started this breeding program that we're a part of. So it's very near and dear to my heart. And my most recent death story was uh, one of my favorite wolves, Zephyr, who's a black wolf, and I've always had this black wolf in my dreams, um, had to be put down. And I was in the den with the vet who was about to give it a shot, and I was just, like, losing it. And I, you know, wolves... They die. So I'm like kind of used to death, but there was something about Zephyr that had just touched my ha heart so much. And the vet looked over me and, and patted my shoulder and he said, do you know how privileged you are to be with a wolf that's breathing its last breath? And I was like, you're right. Like I talk about grief to gratitude all the time. Like I should be like, yeah, celebrating the time that I have been able to spend one-on-one -on -one with a wolf. It's pretty unusual. Not many people get to say that they did that. So. So beautiful. How, how, what is their lifespan? Is it similar to a dog and, or, or somewhat similar? So in captivity, it's very much like a dog about 12 to 15 years out in the wild. It's only like four to six years because they're going after the huge ungulate. So the bison, the deer, the elk, um, the moose, and they've got big hoofs and one wrong hoof is enough to do them in. There's also wolf-on-wolf -wolf aggression and then people killing them. So it's a, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough out in the wild for wolves. Okay. So all the proceeds go, and again, it's called? The Wolf, wolf Conservation wolf, Center. Wolf Conservation Center, and it's in, New, in the state of New York. Yes, and it's nywolf.org. Um, we also have amazing live stream videos of all of our wolves. So it's really fun. It's one of the only places that you can see wolves interacting with each other oh so amazing I, I i will put it on the okay. show notes as well so that people can go and check that out martha thank you again for being here and now how can people get your book we know it's on amazon barnes and noble as well what other ways or on your I've got website a bunch, yeah i have a bunch of different ways on my website marthahunthandler.com you can learn more about me there and yeah got like three different buying choices from there. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thanks for being such a joy to chat with and going along with the flow here as I just throw different <laughs> topics. on. It. It's been really fun, Kendra. I really appreciate you inviting me on. I am grateful for you having been on. Again, this was Martha Hunt Handler. Handler am I saying it correct? Yeah. Martha Hunt Handler on the podcast and her book, Winter of the Wolf. Thank you, Martha. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode and if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone 
who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.